people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. Uh, my name is Alex, and we're not joined by Sam today because he's got something else on. Um, today we're going to be discussing uh, a new book that's coming out in June called Race to the Bottom, Reclaiming Anti-Racism. We're joined by the two authors of the book, Asfar Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi. Um, welcome, guys. Hey, Alex. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah, thanks for the invite. Um, so, first of all, thank you for the for writing the book. I, I found it really useful. And speaking as someone who's you know read quite a lot about anti-racist historical anti-racist movements in the uk i found it really useful still like it kind of reframed things in a way brought new things that i didn't really consider um so yeah thank you for writing the book um you know anti-racism from below is, is quite a useful term because it's you know you quite kind of intuitively get what what you mean by it um how where do you place the beginning of this kind of anti-racism from, from below and how do you think it differed from from what came before it? Yeah, sure. So I think we trace sort of like the book concerns itself with like like post-war anti racism, right? Um, so basically, political organizing by at that point mostly post-war migrants from the new new new, new, sorry, new Commonwealth, um, and then sort of the, the I guess the, the next generation of spring after that. So in the first generation, we kind of like you know basically forty-five to like maybe fifty-eight. Uh, which is like the first generation of migrant migrant organizing, um, and then the second generation we sort of like it does after that sort of really comes into its own around 67, 68 with the I guess emergence of Black Power in Britain. Um, so that's I guess the two main phases, and then uh, we we sort of periodize that phase with eighty one. Um, so I guess the uprisings then uh, under under Thatcher, and then what came afterwards is what I guess the book concerns stuff with how the sort of Black Power era was sort of a watered down co-opted and sort of um, effectively defeated I guess in many ways. Uh, I think in terms of what came before it, see, so yeah, I think we, I think there's a specific clip history in Britain in terms of how this came about uh, with migration patterns at the end of Japan and so on, which I guess doesn't map on it, in the same way to other countries. So obviously we are aware there was sort of organised by um, at that time sort of Commonwealth um, subjects within Britain, but we sort of didn't concern ourselves with that. We recognised that that happened, but I think the main difference is that this sort of period that we focus on the Black Power era, how it differed is what in one. Um, the fact that you know, in a very objective sense, they, these were people who are now British citizens for the first time in many ways. Um, I think that was that came with a certain sort of um, shift in attitude. The second was the fact that, in you know, objectively, there's conditions within Britain, and in terms of, I guess, the world context was a bit more. Uh, the contradiction to come to the fore in many ways with, like, I guess, the economic downturn that was all kicking in the, in, the, in the early late sixties and early seventies. Um, in sort of emergence of like a nativist uh, far right within Britain, sort of spearheaded by by power, you know, power and powerism, and sort of I guess we saw what we're documenting as a response to sort of like a bifurcation within the sort of national politics in, in national politics of like a, a more a, a sort of wounded but resurgent sort of far right within Britain, which responded to the loss of empire, and responding to the fact that you know um, things were getting worse, and also on the other hand, sort of the like events of on one hand, like guess the new left, what we call or what we term it as, but also this black power sort of. Um, Politics, which was outside America in many ways, but sort of spread in, 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 in interesting ways across the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, almost not much to add to that. I think we'll be talking about anti racism from below as well, where we map out in the book uh, in the um, period sort of preceding the 1981 uprisings, 
uh, stemming from, you know, all the way from sort of the uh, the Dialectics of Liberation Conference and the sort of host of organizations that were formed in the aftermath, the UCPA, the Black Panthers, Unity and Freedom Party, uh, BLF, Race Today, all the different collectives and various groups that were formed in the aftermath. Uh, and in that pre-1981 period, we turned to those as sort of instructive, um, but not necessarily to be replicated highly, but very instructive in their uh, methods, their practice, and also their collect their collectivism. Um, and then that sort of takes us into the 1981 uprisings, uh, into the fire and heat of that summer, um, and the events sort of directly surrounding it, um, which then give us the platform through which we talk about uh, the main sort of pillar of the book, which is talking through anti-racism from above and the crisis that is created. You've, you've both brought up 1981, and actually that was my next question. And it, it seems like you, you think of it as a, a kind of a pivotal year here. What happened in that year to, to kind of set, like you put it, put the, set us on the road towards anti-racism from above? Yeah, I don't mind kicking off a bit here. Um, so there were many incidents in 1981 and immediately preceding. I'd say I would touch on perhaps three as the most instructive, which then um, give heat to understanding exactly what happened in that summer, right? So the first being in 1980, so the summer beforehand, um, the uprisings in Bristol, uh, at the Black and White Cafe. So in that summer, um, oh, I, may, I hope I'm not getting my dates wrong. Um, but in 1980, uh, at the Black and White Cafe, which was a cafe which was mainly populated by sort of the recent arrivals to Britain in that community. So many, it, it was a hotspot for the working class, both black and white uh, in Bristol. And even on Somerset Police, Somerset Police still recognise it as probably the most raided uh, property in Britain. It was a site of immense police violence and police uh, brutality. Um, and so there was a flashpoint which began there, which eventually led to when the uprisings hit Brixton in 1981, they chanted, you know, Bristol yesterday, Brixton today. Um, then in the January, February of 1981, we had the horrors that struck uh, New Cross um, with the New Cross fires, um, which led to the deaths of uh, many young black teenagers, a fire that broke out at a birthday party, uh, which many believe um, was began, began with a racist arson attack, which was very commonplace at the time, especially in the local area. And that was met by a wall of silence from government, which led to the collectives um, of race today and others coming together to form the New Cross Public uh, Action Committee, the New Cross Massacre Public Action uh, Committee. Um, and they led the Black People's Day of Action, which uh, had its 40th anniversary last year too. Uh, this was huge. This was 10,000 people marching from the site of the fire, go going across the Thames, walking down Fleet Street to make the point of highlighting uh, that the newspapers and the media's involvement in the racist depictions uh, of racialized people in Britain, and then uh, eventually all coalescing at Hyde Park. Uh, and also in that year, we had the uh, the cases in Bradford, um, where many people uh, in self-defense against fascist attacks um, were, were planning to defend their community against fascist attacks, and as a result, were uh, arrested by the police, um, which led to the Bradford 12 defense campaign uh, under the slogan of self-defense self is no offense. And all of those things coming together 
um, in that summer of that year. And uh, I think as far, you, you may be a better place to maybe talk about Operation Swamp as well, because that was sort of directly uh, led to what happened in Brixton that summer too. So I think, yeah, like, let's mention this precursor to what happened in 81, both in terms of the like, underground, um, the sort of, um, yeah, sort of the, it's the growth or, or um, not growth, but like uh, emboldenment of the far right under the Thatcher government from 79 onwards, um, the, uh, I guess, you know, clear repressive turn taken by the Thatcher government and sort of a series of incidents that I just mentioned, the black and white sort of, um, not right, but you know that's the term of news, I guess, right? Or uprising, um, and 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 New Cross, uh, which led to sort of like what was on one hand, yes, yeah, so it was I guess these came together and sort of again an emboldenment of like um, the black community, especially it was the, the aftermath of the New Cross, um, New Cross massacre, New Cross fire was the um, yeah, the Black Day, sorry, National Black People's Day of Action, um, and on the other hand, the government recognizes sort of like um, there was like a Stirrings of football within like brown communities, um, and these these bring like a, a serious threat to the, for the government at the time. So there was, if I try and find the, the reference, there was a, a study undertaken by, I want to the Home Office, it might, may have been another department, about sort of, I guess, threats to the government out under Thatcher. Let me see if I can actually dig it out. Um, so there was, yeah, it's a Home Office study. Uh, it was called, it was a review, a secret review called Review of Potential for Civil Disturbance in 1981, which I guess surveyed the potential threats and flashpoints. Um, that were emerging at the time, and it was released, I think, just two weeks before, not sorry, two weeks after the Brixton, uh, Brixton uprisings in, in April. Um, so, yeah, so what happened in, in, in Brixton in April was uh, between the 10th and the 12th of April, uh, 1981, uh, the Met Police undertook what the called Operation Swamp 81, where basically, like, a, like a, in the name, the mass swamping operation of the Brixton area, where people were like stop and search uh, under sus powers, so you know, suspicionless powers at the times, um, everywhere you went, it was for like. Um, Tensions were already high. Um, the sort of recruitment of, the, I guess, the despised special patrol group of the Met Police, which basically the paramilitary group, was like a, an extra sort of insult. There'd been a lot of clash with them. They'd been quite at the forefront of brutalizing um, black American communities. Um, and yeah, they were there in mass forces, mass show force, sort of in the aftermath of the National Black People's Day of Action. This was basically seen as their like revenge. They would like crack down on Brixton and make life intolerable. And response to that, you saw that you're kicking off as, as they do, as they should. Um, and they're keeping back incidents with, with the Brixton uprisings that happened between like, the 10th and 12th of April. And later that summer, I guess, other, other cities across the country sort of spark of their own um, uh, mass, mass pushbacks. On one hand, there was either an easy situation, obviously, had different sparks or, or, or causes, was either against the police or was against the far right themselves. So that was sort of the running trend, like this was someone to push back against far right government and far right street forces. And that sort of came together. And the government response was clearly what we described as sort of this containment strategy or, or uh, reining in and rolling back the, the development of this black political um, uh, subjectivity and black political sort of project, I guess you can call it. Yeah, and th- these kind of disciplining, there seems to be like two kind of disciplining forces here on on, on anti-racism. Um, one, state repression from like a central government and two, accommodation and um, I suppose acceptance a seat at the table in with like kind of on the local level along mainly Labour councils. Um, do you do you think this is an accurate assessment, and how much do you think this co-option is tied up with a general neoliberal turn in uh, British politics that kind of it clamps down on union organising and other kind of radical organising? So yeah, I think in hindsight we could definitely see elements of the government response to 1981 which reflect this neoliberal turn at the time, and I think this is most explicit in the cultivation of a small uh, business subsection or an entrepreneurial class 
room like around communities in the years afterwards. But ultimately, what we identify in the book is a three-pronged strategy. Our British black and brown enterprise uh, component is one part, but what we term representation politics is the second, and the cultivation of um, civil society organisations is the third. So the development of black enterprise effectively hinged on turning a political question of systemic racism into a question of you know, merely economics or economic self-sufficiency. And the idea was, you know, that government uh, would support the development of um, small businesses uh, and in turn small business leaders who would in turn emerge as like um, organic leaders of their respective communities, but have obviously have more moderate disposition, um, more conciliatory disposition towards politics than their maybe more radical um, you know, socialists that preceded them in the Black Power era. Um, and I mean, this is something, this is, this is a tactic which is uh, promoted in the Scarman Report. So in the immediate aftermath of the Brixton uprisings, Lord Scarman was commissioned to conduct an inquiry into the causes of it. And his report, the Scarman Report, uh, was released in November 1981. And part of it includes, um, I think in his words, the importance of developing um, you know, businessmen as uh, more responsible, I think in his words, uh, community leaders. Uh, for black and brown people, and uh, I think yeah, more moderate who could be uh, have a stake in the system and uh, basically steer any racist politics, community politics in a particular direction away from confrontation and away from more uh, transformative uh, systemic demands towards a you know, more uh, clear, more moderate, um, demands around uh, business and so on. So, in terms of representation politics, I think this is something we often see, you know, the idea of uh, which still persists today of um, black and brown faces in high places, of having uh, certain figureheads within um, you know the political realm. Uh, media sphere or economics for some reason or another and having these individual figureheads as intermediaries or interlocutors um, with power or government or otherwise uh, on behalf of the communities or which, is, which they uh, propose to speak for. Um, so there was, you know, these individuals or maybe a group of individuals would stand in for a more democratic uh, engagement with, you know, black and brown communities and their individual success stories would be a stand-in for progress at large basically showing either being used as a counterfactual against the idea of racism being an issue, or if racism is acknowledged and shown that there's a way, you know, out of the cycle, but you know, if you follow what these individuals did, we often make going down path of maybe enterprise or some other very um, blind luck or some other path. Yeah, and thirdly is uh, the development of civil society organizations, you know, non-profits, NGOs, charities. So this is a new, um, you know, this is a new model by any means, even in the context of black power, uh, we saw in the immediate aftermath of the emergence of black power in the late 60s, um, the urban aid funding um, pot being used to uh, fund organizations, basically take them off the streets, take political parties into, um, you know, salaried non-profit roles. Um, but the idea, you know, it is to tether organizations to government or national or local who fund them, in time discipline them to the demands of uh, funders and then their own, you know, requirements, and reproduce a sort of strong professional activist who were like cut off from their from their base within the community. So yeah, I think uh, between these three uh, strands of, of enterprise um, representation and civil society, we see elements of neoliberalism. Uh, we will see how they still underpin to some degree uh, neoliberalism today as it exists. Um, but I think what's more important arguably is how the strategy cleared the way for the growth of factorism and in turn allowed for the development of neoliberalism as a project at the time. So and it achieved this by incorporating um, that subsection of the population which could not be incorporated under the old uh, post-war welfare settlement. So you know it was the British colonies which provided the wealth and the resources which underwrote the welfare state, the post-war welfare state in Britain and it was the colonial subjects within Britain, the migrants, who again provided the, the workforce which kept it ticking. Um, and these were also the sections 
of the population which were permanently excluded by the settlement despite you know independent being predicated on, on their backs so even the institutions of the left so the trade unions and the Labour party were you know exclusionary and, and racist towards them by and large um so the Labour party maybe use them as a vote bank come election time but ultimately offer them nothing in return other than a more racist laws um so what black power represented um, was the organised political expression of the people most alienated from um, the post-war British settlement, of the people who had been incorporated into the very bottom of Britain's working class, uh, bottom of, of its racial hierarchy, and who had been most excluded from the institutions of British society, uh, both left and mainstream. I mean, I think as, as far covered covered it um, in detail there, so sort of the... Uh... The theory that we're putting forward uh, in regards to uh, what came after 1981, I mean, those legacies that Aswa spoke about uh, in terms there, the impact that they had on anti-racist organising on a community level and all of that cannot be understated. And what's also really crucial to remember is also it had a huge impact on how policing operated in all the, for all the decades, for all the decades that followed, just like the echoes of 1981 impacted anti-racist organising, they would forever impact on the way in which policing uh, and state repression would work as well. Uh, we know, for example, that spy cops were uh, present um, in the demonstration at Southall, uh, where Blair Peach was murdered. Uh, we also know that is very likely, and that the um, that the uh, spy cops division were especially keeping an eye on the SWP position as it pertains to especially blacks. That's what one of the leaked documents. Um, uh, that's what one of the declassified documents now show. Um, and we know, you know, it meant that even spy cops were probably present at some of the collectives and groups uh, that were emerging in the immediate aftermath of 1981, such as the Brixton defence campaign. We know one of the uh, events in Brixton um, after the rebellions in 1981 called From Riot to Rebellion. Uh, the pamphlet was um, was copied, uh, was sent to uh, the special branch at the time as well. Uh, and that there were very likely uh, agents who were present there. We know, for example, that policing tools and operations were used, which were used in 1981 for the first time, have forever continued to define policing. For example, in Toxteth in 1981, CS gas canisters were used for the first time uh, on the British mainland. Prior to that, those more those modes of um, weaponry and arsenal uh, were used in the north of Ireland or across uh, Britain's other uh, other colonies. Uh, we know, for example, that there were deaths by police vehicles, uh, which were rammed into protesters. Um, it, again, that one was in Toxteth. Um, and those have also, and at the moment, we're seeing like a massive rise in individuals and organisations concerned with the rise of deaths by police vehicle chases and police pursuits uh, and after interaction with police vehicles. So the method of policing that began to solidify post-1981 is one that we've seen being deployed against anti-war protesters, against climate change protesters, and indeed against the demonstrations that took place in summer 2020. I'm just to drop in and jump off to something Elias mentioned, which I'd, I'd forgotten about. Um, but I think it's important to underscore just how central repression was in the national government response to 1981. So it was fierce, it was often designed to make an example but I think one of the immense or broad-ranging strategy post on symbolised was that repression was not enough, it needed co-option, needed some semblance of consent from black and brown communities. So what the national government response post-81 was, or, or did, was to seize upon the already existing stratification and segmentation among black and brown communities, especially in terms of class and class position, um, to seize upon these contradictions, to advance them, to deepen them, and to effectively uh, lift up 
and allow the um, black brown middle class or pale bourgeois elements to assert themselves uh, more on the political agenda and develop a formal and racist politics around their own concerns and needs and develop any racist organizations around their own needs and concerns in such a way that they could present these as somehow representative of black and black American communities at large, right? So again, they'd all existed as a social fact. Um, but what supposed to in response did was to give them the opportunity to assert themselves as a political actor, the black brown middle class, who would be the leading edge of any racist organizing in large part. And while repression was an important element, it's also important to recognize how um, you know the, the development of this project was not, um, was not seamless, it was not entirely coherent, the different tensions among the different actors involved. Um, so it wasn't like black and brown communities went from being uh, excluded prior to April 81 to being included immediately afterwards. It's sort of development, slow development, uneven development of the project. And the tensions between, for example, you know, the, the national government, uh, who are hard right persuasion, obviously, and Lord Scarman, who I guess was more of a, uh, a liberal establishment type. And so this was reflected in his report, uh, which the government wasn't entirely, you know, on board with all the elements of, but were clearly quite keen to latch on to the elements relating to um, the development of black enterprise and so on. The tensions between the Labour left uh, factions, who were sort of like the GOC, um, advanced this municipal socialism approach, and the Labour right, who went power um, in terms of the national party level, the party leadership, who you know, jumped on board with the national government to sort of uh, condemn the Labour left as, you know, the loony left, uh, as I know at the time, for dabbling in racism and feminism. So what you had were like free camps with very different levels of power and influence over the process. You had national government on one hand, along with common, you had the Labour left on the other hand, you had this bottom up pressure from uh, many more you know, aspiring black and brown individuals who wanted to change too, so they could get more of a, more of a seat at the table as it were, uh, who in their own ways advanced this project which came together at the level, level of the whole um, to you know, co-opt, contain, undercut type of black power organizing that had sort of predominated in, in, the, in the era prior and to make sure that that kind of like radical confrontational uh, threat to status quo um, could not emerge or could not survive uh, in the same way as it had post-81. Okay, let's move on to to anti-racism from above, which is the main, the kind of the main topic of the book. Before moving into the, the later stages, um, it seems like there's a kind of individual character to to this mode of anti-racism. Like it can't think beyond the individual scale, and so you've got kind of, you know, there's a kind of attitude or the the, the, the anti-racist strategy is to lock up. Um, all the really bad racists for hate crimes, and make sure they're in prison and out of out of sight, um, and then ch- change the minds of you know the kind of more accepted racists and leave aside any kind of other more structural um, issues. Um, how, I guess, um, how limiting is this frame? I mean, obviously it's extremely limiting, but maybe you could spell it out for me for the audience. Yeah. So, yeah, this is exactly uh, what much of our book and, and indeed like what a lot of discussion post-summer 2020 has um, revolved on, on the way in which anti-racism has begun to be treated as a individual project um, and indeed people. And, and this also comes down to people seeing racism as an individual or, yeah. uh, or interpersonal indignity as opposed to state violence. Right. Like we've seen this all the way from in the heat and the fire of the summer 2020 protests. Uh, much of the coverage was relayed on like, you know, what can you do in your workplace um, to make sure um, there's no unconscious bias left, like, and all of those things. 
So the framings that were being deployed and spread mm -hmm. through mass messaging, whether on social media or indeed in the broadcast or tabloid press, was all around forcing people to think about the fact that we had just seen an incident of murder take place via cell phone, mm -hmm. which we have tragically seen many, many times in similar circumstances across the years. And to, down, to cast our eyes down and begin to think about uh, interpersonal indignities, interpersonal interactions, or language of terminology or representation. Um, and that, I guess, gets to the heart of like the way in which post-81, and indeed in many ways, like some of the, the bricks for that were set beforehand, but post-81, we've seen the explosion in this, um, in the way in which racism as a tool, racism as a state project, and racism as a in, in manner of state repression is one which isn't brought to light or is completely cast aside in favor of this neoliberalist uh, individualist framing, which was used to break coalitions uh, and to break collectives. So we talk about the way in which this has happened in various ways, as was pointed to, to many of them already, um, the individualist framings of uh, enterprise, entrepreneurialism, recognition and their, their in representation politics uh, and the way in which NGOs, both, uh, lo both local, regional, international, uh, have come in and scooped activists off the streets and, and led to the depoliticization of street campaigns. And then there's also the growth of racism uh, awareness training imported from the States again in the 80s, uh, which led to the basis and the framing of unconscious bias uh, and all of those things which dominate discussions on race today. Um, so I, th I think Sivan Anden's writing on this um, was one that we turned to quite often, uh, uh, as we all should. Um, but in particular, many of his essays which track the growth of uh, this race awareness training, uh, so uh, rat, uh, rat um, and the degradation of black struggle being like quite a, a seminal essay to read. Um, and mm. through using that, we're able to track throughout the years uh, the way in which the introduction of that language has led to the depoliticization of struggle um, and how this anti-racism from above um, meant that the sum of all these moving parts, which were all taking place at the same time, meant that the mass movement, the mass movement as a whole uh, was undermined in its entirety through all of these things working. And, you know, some of this was intentional. We saw uh, the the report that was sent um, to the Prime Minister's office uh, just before the Scarman Review was published in 1981 after the visit to the States by an MP who spoke about how in the US, in the after, uh, alongside the civil rights movements, they promoted, you know, uh, what was the exact language? Was Responsible black leaders. Um, and that they recognized that the viewpoint to move ahead was through the creation of a growing middle class um, who could be used to temper working class rebellion uh, among, within the black community. Um, and so we see the ways in which this is intentional uh, and the ways in which this has played out, sometimes even with the best of intentions, the last part I was speaking, there were even elements of the left that toyed with some of the ideals that later led to the depoliticization of struggle. Um, because, and that's why in the book, we try and look through that neither with sort of uh, you know, not with a rose-tinted lens or with malice, but just an assessment of that, that although it may not have been within their short-term vision that their actions could have led to the wider depoliticization of struggle, the reality is that is what's happened in the long term uh, and how we can move back to 
those instructive elements and forces um, that defined anti-racism from below. Well, yes, and I think just uh, I guess to summarise it though, I think what we identify or uh, label as sort of anti-racism from above, or I guess the process we identify more importantly is the emergence of state multiculturalism, right, from the late, um, I guess as it began in the early eighties and sort of really took form at the beginning of the new Labour governments. And I think um, I guess the point to that is in terms of how racism was was redefined, right, sort of like attitudinal turn where it was um, how do I put this? Yeah, so I think the response. Uh, well, understanding racism that became more prominent that was given that given you know, get a precedence in every in a clear manner was you know structural racism was refreshing as an issue of managing racist attitudes and interpersonal hostility rather than you know structural uh, racism as we understand it right and that that sort of that turn um towards understanding attitude and and, and and interpersonal issues at least it open for i guess very apolitical and procedural solutions to racism um like Elias mentioned the racism awareness trainings which came out um, so fundamentally, what we have is, yeah, it's even in the McPherson definition of racism, um, of institutional racism, which obviously is given, uh, it's like, I guess, Trump made a lot because of what came uh, out of the um, Lawrence Inquiry. And but even that uh, the report defines institutional racism in, as, and I quote, the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and personal service to people because of the color culture, that And the report, it can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, or behavior. So ultimately, even that report, it, it sort of fragments racism as sort of like the cumulative response of individuals and they're having the wrong attitude and that comes comes out in institutions like probably not the worst definition, but definitely not the best by any means. I think, again, they sort of returned into a very mechanical sense, which sort of places a great prominence on like individuals as both the, um, uh, I guess, bearers of racism is on them to sort them out, to sort of focus on this, the soul spirits and, and the ideology. And in terms of action, so again, it, the locals find racism most to the individual. How can sort of we, um, how can we do better for them? How can these individuals who are prominent in, in role to political life maybe, or, or representation, how can we make refashion society and institutions to better serve them? It's sort of like changes, again, yeah, the shift, locals shift towards the individual as well as the, uh, cause and the solution to, to racism and so that it, out of that comes that emerges that this new trend of developing anti-racist strategies entirely out of um, unconscious bias and so on there's also i think in the creation of this multicultural britain uh, the not only the division of of the kind of the working class overall um but the division of the anti-racist movement of and the assignation of different interests to different interest groups, as it were. So we've got how do we how do we cater to the black interest? How do we cater to the Asian interest? And it kind of fragments everything even further in that these people, these groups, uh, these constructed um, these groups are then played off against each other in many ways. So you know we need to give a certain amount of funding here to satisfy this um, interest group. We need to give a certain amount of funding here or a certain amount of attention. And, and and that's another uh, consequence of that. Yeah, for sure. I think definitely, especially when, again, after the 81 turn, when you got um, uh, non-profits uh, working on anti-racist work, uh, in the broad sense, became uh, on the payroll, became bankrolled by uh, maybe grants or, or yeah, mostly grants to local government and some national government. It sort of creates a scarcity culture, right, where you rather than work together, organizations in terms of broad political aspirations it's a case of you know make sure you get you, you tailor your your pitch towards um caring towards a particular audience maybe a particular community rather than being a broad and racist uh, organization or broad um uh, yeah campaign group you have to sort of find, identify a niche audience or, or base and, and pitch accordingly and sort of like say again it, it sort of fosters that hardens those divisions but sort of forcing people to uh struggle on on the 
on the trail of, of funding. Um, and definitely, yeah, this sort of approach of fragmenting people, uh, fragmenting societies, sorry, fragmenting communities in different interest groups, I think comes out of that. I think, you know, uh, I think the question of general, like, it's sort of in a broader sense, the question of uh, self-organization versus, I guess, the call it separatism, uh, does come out uh, when we're addressing the book a bit. Like, it's, it's more of a, a difficult question to answer than we might want to admit. Like, there are different times where, like, we come from, like, ourselves being a less careful tradition of organizing uh, from, I guess, the successes to what were known as the black sections during, during the 80s, right? Sort of, um, like, caucuses, right, for, like, black man people to organize within. I think that there's a partition within that of that. Sorry, I think that's important to an extent. But I mean, definitely, when when those became seen and become seen less as a matter of you know, organizing, uh, sort of yeah, again developing, uh, you know, creating a space in which you can develop a base in which to organize a broader political objective, um, and become seen less or more about again those spaces in which you can identify figureheads who can sort of be maybe achieve elected positions or, or become yeah become seen as like the the emerging leadership um, leadership strata. Then that becomes a problem, and it becomes more a case of um, again having your own niche and sort of um, about this fortifying yourself from, from other groups who potentially again pose a threat to your uh, ambitions or objectives. So yeah, I think that this all comes out of this sort of move towards uh, I guess stratifying um, funding and reorganizing I guess communities into mutually exclusive, mutually competing interest groups rather than sort of yeah people have a stake in, in, a, in a political project which is broad ranging but can accommodate for difference in different ways. So, okay, um, I suppose moving on to the more state repression aspect of, of, of the book, you know, we've, we've seen in the, in the last 40 years that like the intense development of these kind of um, state structures and um, uh, aspects of policing which have like incredibly clamped down on um, uh, black organising, black communities, uh, Asian communities. Um, you know, thinking specifically, at least in the, in the in the last twenty years of Prevent Program and all the kind of other stuff that goes along with that. I know there's a review right now being done on Prevent by uh, a guy called William Shawcross, who is uh, a kind of very a bad guy, virulent Islamophobe, and there's not much good that's going to come out of the of that review. I don't think, um, and it's it's clear to me that fighting back against these kind of state repressive straight instruments, uh, state structures, is is key to any kind of emancipatory project. Um, how can we come? I suppose my question is: How can, can we can confront these? Um, how do we incorporate confronting these elements of of um, of the state into our organising and make it part of this kind of multiracial socialist organising which you talk about in the book? Yeah, um, so I mean, you pointed to, for example, the uh, Prevent Independent Review being led by uh, the former director of the Henry Jackson Society, former chair of the Charity Commission, and future, I've forgotten what his new government role is, Commissioner for Public Standards, I think. Um, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, William yeah. Shawcross, uh, the man who infamously uh, has made like quite a few uh, uh, vitriolic quotes around Islam and Muslims. Um, and I guess. One of the things to point to, and I think this is the development of the last few years, is increasingly more and more people are recognizing that coalitional work and collective work and the recognition that our opponents are the same is the way in which we we move forward. I know when when uh, Shawcross was announced as the reviewer, we immediately saw the withdrawal of many uh, from many groups within civil society, over 400 
uh, Muslim groups in Britain or refusing to participate and give the stamp of approval to to whatever the review would produce, which was likely to be a both a whitewashed uh, a version of uh, both. It was due to be both a whitewash as well as like a almost a rightwash as well uh, through negating the role of the far right. Um, and you know the leaks in the prevent review that came out last week said that William Shawcross's review is going to conclude that the definition of neo-Nazi has been widened too much to include regular right-wing behaviour. Um, and yeah. so you know there's and. Which is a classic line of people like Douglas Murray that you know everyone's called far right now and yeah exactly like this is letting this is um, letting in some of the most uh, you know this is like fully Enoch Powell paranoia stuff uh, which is um, seeping into to the mainstream again through all these uh, in all these ways um, but and what we're seeing increasingly is this coalitional work, the recognition that our enemies are the same is beginning to define a new form of organizing, which hasn't fully taken form yet, I don't think, uh, in my assessment. Um, because what we're seeing is we are still constrained by many of the pitfalls that the post-81 period has trapped us into. And we're yet unable to break out of the mold of organizing, which has existed within the constraints of the 1981 framework uh, and as a result it's for us to interrogate and think around what does this new project look like which both breaks out of that framework and also provides a vision for a liberated tomorrow because until we get to that stage we are going to continue living in the pits of our mistakes and the errors uh, which have defined sadly far too many groups um, over the last few years. Uh, obviously, what, what Thatcher and the government recognised, um, both in response to 81, but also beyond that, was this sort of, sort of opening. I guess they emerged, in, it, it emerged as, as an expression of a crisis within, within capitalism. It sort of seized the moment and sort of like took Britain, it, it sort of transformed the British state in, in many ways. I think we're still seeing a similar transformation now, right? When sort of, um, again, contradictions come to bear even more, and we are going to be on groups of crisis that won't be ending anytime soon. Um, and I think, especially the last few years, um, uh, I guess, especially since the general, general election, we've sort of seen um, government forces and allied forces clearly act, seize upon the initiative as sort of, um, it may really transform, not the character of the British state entirely, but, you know, I definitely do away the, the last institutions of liberalism that remained, right? Uh, both within the government, also, like, you know, there was like an arms range within the state, I think that's the crackdown universities, for example, and the media sort of represents this sort of, um, attack on what they imagine like bastions of, of liberalism or even like as they imagine bastions of the left which is anyone's been to university you know, not the case but bastions of liberalism i think you know soon transformation a great centralization of power right around the executive and, and state power as sort of yeah definitely a new a new state that is prepared with preparing itself to fortify itself to deal with the sort of very turbulent years that, that are ahead of it i think they're recognizing that and i think if they're, they're ever forward thinking strategy on the part of the government to prepare themselves for uh difficult years ahead then equally people on the left and us we have to have a similar broad range strategy i think sometimes again it's stuck especially people involved in like maybe lobbying or campaigning work trying to like we suck in a, an old model of lobbying where we sort of see a bill coming through we try and like ameliorate the worst aspects of it maybe and sort of see what we can get out of it or you know what we're done and clearly that's like um on all fronts field uh, frankly we've seen all the laws come through like one after the other nationally and borders act um now an act the uh, policing uh, crime sentencing courts act and now an act and i think all strategies of like you know uh, however spirited they were however active they were however how people hard people tried them and tried to do even the ones tried to do they failed right i think that whole strategy of trying to get again 
soften out the worst excesses of government policy is not going to work anymore. So yeah, a different new strategy. Uh, we definitely have all the solutions we see up front, right? We, we propose sort of directions of travel uh, in the book, at the end of the book. I think it's definitely no conversation we need to have more broadly. That, but first thing fundamentally, just I guess break from the strategy, especially within guess, any racist subsection, if I call it, of the left, to break out of this sort of like this um, the grip of, of 1981 and sort of whatever remains of it. Um, I think non-consciously roots themselves as, as you know, post 81 is, but I think definitely there's elements of strategy still have, have a chokehold on us. And in terms of coalitions, um, I think there's sort of maybe two ways of approaching coalition, right? Um, one, which I think we've become uh, most accustomed to in recent years, is sort of the uh, the coalition geared towards electoral aims, right? The kind of coalition we maybe under under the corporate Labour Party, which basically becomes like a lowest common denominator approach of identifying different, uh, often very different audiences or, 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 I guess, vote banks, right? How can you appeal to them in different ways, right? It isn't necessarily cohesive. It's just a way of keeping enough elements within X... Um, X base or X audience happy so that they have a buy-in in the project, right? They're very like low intensity, uh, often quite deeply sized model of like getting enough things on the manifesto to appeal to them. And I think as part of that, we saw the, uh, even under like the Kormalay party, like the uh, racism as an issue, anti racism was ultimately the weakest part in terms of uh, especially um, like state violence, right? The emphasis on like more bobbies on the beat, the police aspect of it. It's a complete failure on the part of the Labour left at the time. And even like, appealing to like black and brown communities more broadly, uh, that, that was also uh, like, I felt pretty weak. I think there was something, what was it? They, um, I can't remember exactly wording, but sort of reinforced the idea of like a you know, high achievement and so on and so forth. It very much um, was rooted in the idea of like we need to get, you know, um, people higher or higher up the pole effectively. The more black places and places as I remember it. So again, we need a new, and that's one type of coalition. Second type of coalition, so I guess the red coalitions are sort of, um, Identify that we are we are we are in this together in some form. We have maybe um, have a mutual stake and investment in a wider political project. But again, it's sort of a coalition that aims to build a political project uh, that is you know uh, how about this works together to build a political project rather than sort of this again low intensity low politics sort of um, electoral coalition. So I think again, if we move away from electoral coalition, the first step and move towards a more like a more again a widely politicized one. That's kind of go, does away with the model of like the ice crash your backing fresh fine pod approach. Was a more expansive, um, yeah, a more expansive collectivity, more dynamic collectivity, a form of of, of, of politics, sort of, um, yeah, I forget the word exactly, but yeah, sort of more, I guess, high intensity, uh, more politicized coalition model that kind of assists the uh, transcend sort of divisions rather than sort of reinforce them and sort of pocket them out into various different ethnic enclaves or different interest groups. Right, that that model has to go. So yeah, I think um, there are different approaches now. We are basically in short in an era now. New strategies have to be developed. Uh, and it includes a new, new type of coalition building. Um, and I think we have seen sort of like a new shoots developing. I want to support them. Um, I think I guess the last point I say on this, and I'm rambling a bit, is um, so we as we present it in terms of like the two terms we use, like you know, animation from above, uh, to term this you know, state multicultural approach, and animation from below. But often I think it's something. It can be sometimes a bit of a cliche on the left where um, anything from below is necessarily good because you can't oppose it to sort of bad statist or state-led projects, including state socialism, and then sort of say because it's from below, it's therefore uh, unencumbered by contradictions. It can sort of somehow, you know, um, skip over all the issues that, that emerge in politics. I think it's not the case. I think ultimately, um, our from below does not, or at least my personal opinion, uh, from below, any projects from below does not necessarily turn away from the issue of state power. Uh, I, will, I will put state power different to like electoral, um, you know, electoral success. But I think state power ultimately should be something um, we aim towards in some form, transforming it, changing it, not weakening it definitely at least. And I think uh, any 
sort of college politics and build itself towards, or any political project we orient itself towards. And again, should not sort of shy away from uh, the question of state power or national politics and sort of uh, turn away and sort of, I guess, retreat to sort of very localized community-based politics. It sort of like seek to build a coalition that is able to um, tackle, confront, again, and transform state power. So I think that's the main takeaway. Like Andreessen from below should not mean a retreat into localism or, or, or very parochial um, politics. And it should be a, a means for which we advance uh, advance power and really build it in a meaningful way. Um, I think one of the problems I've had um, in conceiving of, 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 of moving forward from our current situation is the incorporation of anti-imperialist politics into our organising. And I think oftentimes it's an unfortunate um, kind of, again, almost like an interest group balancing between the national the national scale interest of people in the UK and the wider global um, context. Um, and I wondered how how you guys thought about, um, you know, incorporating anti-imperialist organising into, um, like, uh, it seems, I don't know how to describe it, like national scale um, organising. Yeah, I, we, we talk about this in the book as well, in the way in which internationalism has been completely... Uh, depoliticized, outsourced, uh, and um, criminalized within the UK in different ways. So when we talk about it being depoliticized, um, we talk about the way in which, you know, the increasing shift of movements in the UK to focus within the realm of uh, legal, uh, of talking about, you know, the violations of uh, of rights and freedoms, um, to depoliticize and out, uh, to depoliticize it by taking by negating the role of imperialism as a global project, right? Like in the last ten years, we've seen the growth of all these movements to decolonize everything from the curriculum to your diet to, to everything. But amidst all these conversations on decolonization, you know, a, li- a term in, a term which increasingly has just been co opted and diluted, the role of imperialism has been vastly vastly under discussed um if or not completely intentionally erased um and so what we're seeing and then we're talking about it being criminalized through the way in which for example prevent uh criminalizes discussion around palestine uh, and other internationalist um political projects and um, we talk about the way in which uh increasingly and we specifically use the palestine the palestinian cause as a example of this the way in which the different forces at play which is something we spoke about um whether those be political parties international human rights organizations uh, and various other interest groups have meant that the palestinian cause has been removed from anti-imperialism politics uh, almost within the national consciousness and relegated and handed over to to the to the discuss, to the discourse of human rights and charity, um, and the role which that has played in the negation of discussion around anti-imperialism within Britain uh, and within political organising, um, and so we talk about the importance of recovering anti-imperialism, anti-imperialist politics, and building that in to and building an anti-racist analysis that forms itself and reinserts itself within the struggle of uh, within the struggles against imperialism and capitalism and by creating the anti-racist analysis and movement that places itself there we much more move back towards uh, being able to recover an anti-racism from below and advance on that front i think definitely like um if it's any if it's not any i don't want to hear it right i think that is central to, to the book and the project i think what we what we 
identifies that you know again this black power era what was central to it uh was it was a, this anti-imperialist subjectivity like, even when they define themselves i think that the ways that the errors often did or i guess boil down to understood is a question of like political blackness right which is another quite contentious um idea of you know um african asian caribbean people define themselves as black i think was often how they're seen is like in a very uh reductive sense of um merely a reflection of people wanting a term to connote like in like um I guess solidarity with it in Britain, right? Or not white people in Britain having some, you, you know, um, common um, identifier. I think what's missing of that is that that was formed in like the crucible of like the anti-imperialist or upsurge of like, the late 60s. So uh, basically what political blackness identified was not just a term for like solidarity within Britain, but recognition of, you know, uh, an inclusion within like a global project, which is, um, I guess, identified global, sorry, it connoted analysis of a global analysis of power. That makes sense. Um, so it's like the, I guess uh, in some ways it was a sort of um, almost a metaphor for like um, white imperialism versus the colonized darker black and white people of the earth. So I think that sort of that came through very much in the literature of the time. I think um, basically what I'm trying to say is that imperialism was baked into sort of the subjectivity of people at the time, the ideology groups who came up in the constitutions they had like a clear emphasis quite explicit like you know they're not just here for moderate and racist gains at, at home in britain they have their various connected to and support any any police struggles worldwide this is the era of you know the vietnam war the vietnam Vietnamese resistance sort of a red coalition of the palestinian liberation uh, struggle um sort of south african actually west africa you know liberation struggles but obviously it came about at a time uh when people the colonized people of the earth were on the move and I think uh, we're different times now. I think the need for uh, to sort of reconnect anti-imperialism, so anti-racism, anti-imperialism, as affecting one same struggle, is is more vital more than ever. What we really saw in the turn past eighty one was like a means to give black and white people a stake within Britain, within I guess the British national politics, at the expense of a sort of more expansive internationalism. Um, it did not completely do away with it, but I think there's definitely a watering down of it, and I think. Nowadays, we have the problem where internationalism is sort of outsourced again NGOs who maybe have international context within civil society. And I think, uh, oh yeah, it can be a long answer, but I think just keep it short. We have to sort of re reinvigorate, re politicize, and sort of like take back internationalism from NGOs into sort of radical political action, sort of confronts the issues of our time, which are getting more, more stark now more than ever. And I suppose on a, on a basic level, part of the incorporating anti-imperialism into our organising is to refuse the state and the media's charge that any expression of solidarity with Palestine is a race, like description of um, Israel as a racist project or an apartheid state is a racist um, thing and, and, and should be shut, should be therefore shut out of, um, I suppose, normal political discourse. And, and we need to refuse that and repeat um, solidarity with Palestine. And, and also um, be active around that issue as well, uh, active around that sphere. Finally, um, you know, we've mentioned some of these kind of anti-racist um, kind of movements that have sprung up in the recent years, you know, 2020, um, the, the opposition to the statue defenders and before that, the tearing down of the statues in, in Bristol and, you know, different things, cop watches and things like this. How can we, how can we co-opt the, um, sorry, <laughs> not how can we co-opt? Oh God! How can we immunise um, these movements against co-option? How can we, you know, refuse this the kind of call of an anti-racism from above and 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 reground our our movements in 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 mass organising? Yeah. Um, so I guess we talk about in the book and towards the end uh, we speak to like a number of uh, a, a number of activists in different fields who we've organised with in in various forums. 
um, about what the prescription for the future looks like, right? Uh, and it's about uh, what we were talking around, around reinvigorating and um, resetting the anti-racist struggle as as within uh, as the struggle uh, against imperialism and capitalism, building the, a broader a broader struggle for popular democracy, and to build anti-racism into a socialist framework. Um, and those three pillars, alongside the recognition of understanding these various factors at play and the place we're in at the moment, I think is the key to moving forward. Like by seeing cop watches spring up, by seeing all of these uh, various collectives, whether those are, you know, the individuals who are protesting in Manchester uh, against um, joint enterprise uh, and and uh, and pieces of legislation which criminalise people. Um, for, and send them to prison based on text messages and things like that. Um, all the way to exactly what we're talking about, those that were standing in solidarity, whether those that stand said 15, the Colston 4, the various other uh, anti-deportations, uh, the, the individuals that we've seen protesting against deportation vans in Edinburgh, Glasgow and London. Um, by seeing that vision of community spring forth, what we need to do is build on these flashpoints as they emerge uh, and build these collectives that have the anti-racist grounding and that frog and the wider foregrounding of the struggle, um, and situate those as central pillars moving ahead, as well as understanding all the pitfalls that our that that movements fell into in the past, and that's why we look at we look at these things within the book as. Some of the pitfalls that groups fell into, and I mentioned this before, may not have been intentional, but had severe consequences for the movement at large. And I think we are in a very similar point now as they were in the 80s. Uh, and we faced the same challenges with different faces or some with the same faces. And that's why what we do today is going to define the struggle for the next 40 years. Um, so this book really, as well as being a hopeful helpful guide for people to understand what's happened before um will be instructive to discussing the steps we can take to move ahead um yes yeah, so in terms of i guess new groups that are emerging post 2020 um so these other ones that i'm aware of uh i guess one of you mentioned I, I think there's a right head on them i think definitely shout out to groups that, you know the cop watch groups that side up and uh, for example, on, on some any pluralism like action groups like that doing doing good work, I think they've definitely the right uh, political analysis. I think I don't again reason I don't want to give too much credit in terms of uh, framing this government as a sort of um, a factor part two is I don't think they had sort of uh, broad uh, program, um, broad ranging program that sort of the factor government did. I don't you know they sort of sort of seized the moment of crisis uh, sort of. Save, save Britain, save British capitalism. I don't think we have a government now who knows exactly how to sort of save themselves or sort of um, give you know, capitalism a new lease of life in the way that neoliberal sort of project did. Um, what we have now is a government trying to fortify itself from a series of, of you know, ever cascading crises and sort of stabilize something. Um, so again, I don't think we're coming sort of the same sort of multi-pronged strategy of containing any racism that we saw in the in the 80s. I think we're going to see that again, more, more uh, blatant oppression. On both sides, you know, bipartisan consensus on the looking more pressure down the line. So at least I think a new groups coming up, I guess I have to be aware of that and um, I guess conscious of that and prepared for that. Um but I don't think it's gonna be much to be honest, I'm maybe speaking to assume I don't think it's gonna be the same sort of like a uh, project of like buying off and sort of uh, containing in the same way. Because I don't think any any political party has has some will for that. They just want to find a way to sort of like 
stabilize themselves as much as possible, back down in any opposition. And I think, but really, I think what we, what groups need to be aware of is like the what, uh, rather, rather than being like having the wrong analysis, maybe I think what they may encounter is um, so again, objective conditions of the field that make it difficult for them to advance the agenda that they want to do. For example, I think that we mentioned in passing, we mentioned a lot more in the book of the preem preeminence, predominance, or like NGO type organizing or nonprofit organizing of people in nonprofits, people outside of it, as sort of seeing them as like as the, the bastions of, of a defense strategy. Uh, I think, um, you know, I'm not uh, quite harsh in it at times, but we're not, I guess we're not anti-NGO, but we recognize they are, do have distinct limitations to becoming, uh, I guess, more and more distinct by the day. I think I'll fundamentally, if we maintain a strategy of combating the challenges that are, you know, come against us by rallying behind NGOs and hoping they'll save us, I think we should do away with that illusion, right? That's not going to save us. Secondly, the question of legalism and a very legalistic approach to what we are, um, to combat racism, that will no longer do. So I think, um, I guess to keep it short, I think what we encounter is, yeah, I think what we should be aware of will come up now is sort of the, the or I guess the after, after lives of the one approach. This still exists in the forms of how we, institutions that we that we have yet to build. That those are the problems we still, and I think any campaign groups that start up now need to be very conscious of that. It's a, sort of, yeah, the political landscape they're emerging in is very hostile. The strategies and, and institutions that had previously supported them are no longer uh, were able to or no longer fit to do so. Uh, it's really a question of building new organizations, a new type of politics, a new type of coalition building. And it's just to re go to the last question, I guess, fundamentally re imputing an anti imperialist internationalism back into politics is necessary. I think that is basically that's central to sort of the corporate strategy that I was using anyone. And if you maintain a, a strong principle of anti imperialism, corporate is no longer an issue, oppression is. But I think we have to make it central to our politics and make sure we don't allow ourselves to, again, of copy these uh, very bad social democratic approaches of like allowing the world to burn while we fought for ourselves in our little island. I think the same approach government trying to take. I think it's important that as any racist or socialist, we don't try to take a similar approach of trying to save ourselves while the rest of the world burns around us. Um, so again, it's a very sort of truncated and somewhat incoherent answer. I think that's the main thing. There's a lot of things coming our way. We need to get our heads together, we need to come together, we need to organize and build institutions, political culture, and new type of politics to defend ourselves and advance the project. Brilliant. I think that's a really good uh, last line to end the interview on. Um, thank you both for uh, coming on. Um, the book is called Race to the Bottom, Reclaiming Anti-Racism. It's out with Pluto Press. You can pre-order it now. So you go to Pluto Press, their website, and you can pre-order. The, the orders get released on the 20th of June. Um, I thoroughly recommend uh, getting the book and reading it um, and starting a discussion group on it, you know, um, so yeah, is there anything else, last thing you want to plug, any other project you've got going that you would like to get out there? Um, I'm wishing Elias has gone in this place. Uh, no, no, no projects, I think, yeah, please uh, find the book somehow, please do read it, uh, and let us know how you feel about it, and we hope it's sort of, it's used to inform and advance campaigns on the ground. Uh, so in, in the note, we're, we'll be attending some events, so we've got like a sort of semi-tour going with events, but I think if any groups on the ground want to reach out to us and I guess talk about terms of strategy in very more intimate private settings, we're happy to do that too, I think that's important. And we, again, we have all the answers, but we're looking to engage people who want to build answers together and I think that's the main takeaway. It's not a book for a book's sake, it's not a history project. Uh, we're trying to do a small part towards advancing, again, the week, reconstruction of, of our anti-racist, radical anti-racism in Britain, and anyone on the ground want to do that too, we're happy to talk with you and, and support you and, and see what we can learn from you as well.